Our sermon passage this morning is Genesis 38, which can be found on page 32 in the blue Bible under the chair in front of you. Genesis 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her on the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enam, at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. 
And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread on, it, on, his, on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, the brother, the, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Well, being a father is hard, and if you're here on this Father's Day and maybe you're discouraged about your parenting, <laughs> I'd like to encourage you, you're probably not as bad as Judah, so happy Father's Day, I guess. But seriously, the most common conversation that I had with people in the church this week went something like this. Why on earth is this story in the Bible? It doesn't seem like anything of lasting value is accomplished. It just tells a tale of degradation, exploitation, immorality. It just seems like everybody ends the chapter worse off. But I think when you look at the context, it is clear that this story has been inserted into the narrative of the book of Genesis for a reason, right? If you remember where we are in the book of Genesis, we've pretty much left Jacob behind and we've begun to consider the story of Joseph. Last week in chapter 37, we saw uh, Joseph sold into slavery in Egypt. We're told at the end of chapter 37 that he was uh, sold into the house of a, of a man named Potiphar. And next week, we're gonna pick up, Lord willing, right where chapter 37 left off with Joseph in Potiphar's house. And so chapter 38 represents nothing but an interruption in that story. We have to stop for a chapter, right? We, we leave Joseph in Egypt in Potiphar's house. Next week, we're going to pick him up right there. For, for one chapter, we, we leave Joseph and we find out what's going on back at home with Jacob's family, with uh, Joseph's brother Judah particularly. And what I'd like to do this morning is walk through the story that Seth just read for us and try to understand what's going on. Uh, maybe close some of the, the cultural distance that we feel when we, when we come to events like these. And I think if we, if we peel back some of those things that feel very different from the world that we live in, I think we'll find some things that are actually very familiar to us. And then once we're done with that, I, I think we can then answer the question that we all sort of naturally bring to a text like this. And that is, what is God doing? And why on earth is this story in the Bible? So, let's get our bearings here. Remember, the sort of overarching uh, narrative of the book of Genesis, that God made a covenant. He made a promise to a man named Abraham. And he promised that he was going to make a great nation from Abraham's descendants. And he promised to give Abraham's descendants the land of Canaan to dwell in. And he promised that eventually he was going to bless all nations uh, through Abraham and his offspring. 
And so we've seen the Lord bringing those promises to fruition. He gave Abraham a son named Isaac. He gave Isaac a son named Jacob. And he gave Jacob, as we've seen, 12 sons, the fourth of whom was a man named Judah. When we last saw Judah in chapter 37, he was the one who came up with the idea of selling Joseph, his brother, into slavery instead of leaving him to die. So I guess that's good. And it's not exactly clear how much time has passed when chapter 38 opens. So again, Joseph is off in slavery in Egypt. Chapter 38 opens, and in verse 1, we see that Judah, his older brother, seems to be on a downward personal trajectory. Uh, it says there in verse 1 that he goes down from his family, and he turns aside to a certain Adulamite named Hira. So Adulam was a city a little more than 10 miles southwest of Bethlehem. It's probably most famous for being a place where King David uh, hid in caves some thousand years later. But it seems that Judah has made himself at home amongst the Canaanite people. There in verse 2, he marries an unnamed Canaanite woman. She's simply referred to there as the daughter of Shua. Now, this is, this is not an encouraging development, right? If you've been tracking along in the book of Genesis, the fact that Judah leaves his family, leaves the sort of the, the family of God's promised blessing to go down and dwell amongst the Canaanites, it's not a good sign. Right? We saw back in chapter 9 that Noah cursed Canaan and his descendants. In Genesis 15, we've seen the Lord declare his intention to drive the people of Canaan out of their land because of their great wickedness. In Genesis 19, we got a glimpse of life in a Canaanite city called Sodom. And it's safe to say that it was a place full of all sorts of immorality. In chapter 34, we met the Shechemites and we saw a bunch of Canaanites who seemed to think very little of a man assaulting an innocent woman. Later on in this chapter, we see that a large part of their worship, uh, as they would go and, and uh, honor their false gods, a lar large part of their worship involved prostitution. Right? You add in child sacrifice and sorcery and divination, and you see why it was that Abraham's offspring were supposed to keep their distance from the people of Canaan. Back in chapter 4, we saw Isaac made his servants swear that he, he wouldn't find a wife for Jacob from amongst the Canaanites. In chapter 28, we read that Isaac was displeased when his other son, Esau, married Canaanite women. So here, Judah, we read, has left his family. He's gone down to the people of Canaan, and he's taken a Canaanite wife. And so alarm bells ought to be going off. He doesn't seem to be at all uncomfortable in their world. He doesn't seem to be bothered excessively by their customs and their immorality. In fact, as we'll see in chapter or in verse 6 of this chapter, he actually chooses a Canaanite woman for his oldest son to marry. So I think right there at the outset, in the very first few verses of this chapter, we do see a point of connection between these events and our lives. Because all throughout the Bible, there seems to be this tension. Right? The world we live in is a, a sin-cursed, fallen place. We live in a world that is in rebellion against God. But God's also calling out a people for himself. He's saving people, saving them from their love of sin. He's creating a distinct community of holiness and light in the midst of the darkness. And the tension comes in because this community of God's holy people 
are actually called to go out into the world, to engage it, to be agents of transformation. Right? The people of Israel, as we've already seen just in the promises made to Abraham, and as we'll see as the Old Testament unfolds, the people of Israel were meant to be a blessing to the nations. And next week, we're going to see how Joseph accomplished this in his life through his own personal holiness. Right? When we get to the New Testament, we see that the church is meant to be salt and light in the world. We're meant to go out into the world uh, to, to seek those who are lost. And so as God's people, we're meant to be in the world, but not of it. Right? We engage the world around us. We don't cloister ourselves off in monasteries and, and try to avoid the world, but we befriend people. We love people who don't know the Lord. But we don't settle down among them as it were. Right? We, we don't want to learn to love the sinful pleasures of the world around us. Right? We don't want to become comfortable with the crude jokes, the sexual immorality, the greed, the, the pride, the futility that we see around us. Those things ought to grieve us rather than amuse us. And the fact is, Christians in Northern Virginia in 2021 we love the world too much, right? We want to follow the Lord, but we also want to laugh at and enjoy and consume and follow things that displease him. I think this passage reminds us how important it is to choose a spouse that shares your commitment to the Lord and his ways, right? At every point where you see one of God's people marrying someone who doesn't love the Lord, whether that's Samson or Solomon, whoever it is, it always goes badly for them. It's just the nature of marriage. It is such an intimate, such a personal relationship. To be, that to be married to someone who's heading in a different spiritual direction will inevitably make it more difficult to follow the Lord. So if you're already married to someone who doesn't yet know the Lord, then your calling is to honor God in your relationship to that person to be so faithful to them, so loving to them, so Christ-like to them that you might even be able to win them to Christ. But if you've not yet chosen a spouse, then the best thing to do is to make sure that you and your future husband or wife are spiritually compatible. Uh, you see devastating results when people settle into the world, when, they, when God's people marry with, with people who don't love the Lord. Now, back to our story there in verses 3 to 5, we, we see that Judah had three sons by this unnamed woman, Shua's daughter. His, his three sons were Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And this is where the action really begins in our story. There in verse 6, Judah marries Ur, his oldest, off to a local woman named Tamar. There in verse 7, we read that Ur was so wicked that the Lord put him to death. Now, we're not given many details, or really any details, but surely this isn't a good sign. Remember that Judah is a son of Israel. He's supposed to have a line of godly offspring who will inherit the promises of the Lord. But his oldest son is so wicked that he needs to die. Now, what happens next is culturally strange to us, but it involves what's called leveret marriage. That word leveret comes from the Latin word levere, which means brother-in-law. And in order to understand what's going on here, you have to remember this was a society where there were very set ways where in how, for how inheritances should be handled. So in those days, 
really only male children could inherit their family's wealth. Uh, the females generally married into other families and participated in whatever wealth they had. And so, so the, the men were the ones in a family who stood to inherit everything. And the oldest male child inherited the largest portion of all the sons. So, if a man died without producing any male offspring, it was his brother's job to take his widow in and try to conceive a male child with her. And even though that child would be biologically his, for the purposes of inheritance, he would stand in the line of his deceased brother. That way, the, the dead man's line would continue on. Now, maybe that sounds very weird and inappropriate to you, and fair enough. But in those days, I think we have to understand, in those days, it would have been understood as an act of mercy and kindness. Right? If a widow had a male child, that son would inherit his father's portion of the family inheritance, and he would be able to take care of his mother, the widow, in her old age. It was something like a, a social security program. And so here, Ur's younger brother, Onan, is expected to try and give Tamar a son, a son who can inherit and carry, carry on the Ur's line and take care of Tamar in her old age. Right, that's Onan's duty. But there's a problem. Onan is now the oldest son. He stands now to be the first in line to inherit Judah's wealth. But if he helps Tamar to have a son, that child would be considered Er's child. And so he would inherit Er's larger share, the, the massive portion of Judah's estate. And so Onan has a vested interest in Tamar not having a son. If she doesn't have a son, then he gets the lion's share of the inheritance. And so he undertakes a contraception plan that you can read about there in verse 9. There in verse 10, we read that what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. The Hebrew of verse 9 makes it clear that this wasn't a, a one-time sort of rash decision, but this was actually his habit and his practice. This was something he kept doing to avoid giving Tamar a child. Now, some people have read this story, and they've read of the Lord's displeasure there in verse 10, and they've drawn from it the idea that, that married couples should never practice contraception, that what displeased the Lord was the fact that, that Onan wasn't having a child, that all sexual intercourse must have the intention or at least the possibility of conception. But it seems like the thing that displeases the Lord here, it seems like the wickedness is, is Onan's selfish unwillingness to help Tamar, to, to do the thing that he was called upon to do, even though it would have cost him. And so, like his brother before him, he was put to death by the Lord. And we see that there in verse 10. Now, what should happen next? A brother has a widow. His younger brother also dies. Well, it should be the responsibility of the third son, Shelah, it was his job now to give Tamar a male heir. But it seems that Judah, the father, thinks that Tamar must be the problem. Right? He, he decides to try and put her off. Maybe he thought she was cursed. There in verse 11, he sends Tamar back to her father's house for fear that something was going to happen to Shelah. He didn't want to lose his last son. He claims that Shelah is too young and needs to grow up a bit before he can marry her. There in verse 14, by the end of verse 14, we see that even after Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him in marriage. 
And so Tamar launches a plan. It's a plan that, again, seems a bit shady and probably more than a little deceptive to us, and fair enough. But to a person with an ancient mindset, I think to a, a sort of original reader of the book of Genesis, it would be clear that Tamar is the victim here. She, she's not the bad guy. She was being denied what Judah and his family owed to her. She was being left vulnerable and exposed. And so there's a very real way that we should understand her actions as simply her being shrewd in pursuit of justice. The plot begins there in verse 12. We read that Judah's wife has died. He's now a widower. After the time of mourning was over, he went up with his friend Hira to the sheep shearers. So this was a season of the year, the time of year when the sheep were sheared. That was, that was a time that was known for license and excess. It was sort of like Mardi Gras or Carnival might be nowadays. It was a time when, when people would sort of cut loose and do things that they wouldn't do at other times during the year. And so Tamar knows that if she plays her cards right, she can probably catch her father-in-law out on the road looking for a prostitute. And that's exactly what she does. There in verse 14, she veils herself. That's a sort of indication in that culture that, that someone is a prostitute. And she takes a seat at the entrance of the town. We read there in verses 15 and again in verses 21 to 22 that, that Judah uh, thought exactly what she wanted him to think, that she was, in fact, a cult prostitute. There, according to verse 16, he had no idea that this was Tamar, his daughter-in-law. Now, sex, as we've already kind of mentioned, was a big part of pagan worship services and rituals. Right, if you're going to make up a religion, you might as well make one up where you get to engage in all sorts of immorality. And so there were prostitutes who were sanctioned by the temple and who would perform certain sexual rituals with their clients. And that's what Tamar is pretending to be here. There in verse 16, she negotiates a price for her services, and they settle in verse 17 on a young goat. And it's here that Tamar springs her trap. There in verses 17 to 18, she gets Judah to give her his signet and his cord and his staff as a pledge. The idea is she would hold on to these personal items until he paid up the goat that he owed her. These would have been sort of items of personal identification. Sort of like you might, might go somewhere and, and uh, like if you go to the gym and you check out a basketball, they hold on to your, your driver's license, right? So that you have to get it when you come back. Then in verse 19, she disappears. She puts her widow's clothing back on. And she goes about her life, except, we read there in verse 18, she's now pregnant by her father-in-law. In verses 20 to 23, Judah goes to pay the prostitute what he owes her, right? He wants his possessions back. He wants his signet and his staff and his cords. And so he sends a young goat by his buddy Hira. But he can't find this mysterious woman anywhere. In verse 23, after sort of looking around and asking and finding no one who knows what happened to this woman or had seen her, Judah, deci Judah decides his best course of action is simply to allow this woman to keep his things. Uh, otherwise, he will be uh, forced to undergo a more public search and he'll bring ridicule on himself. There in verse 24, the plot thickens even further. Word comes to Judah that Tamar is pregnant even though she doesn't have a husband. Now remember, the fact that she doesn't have a husband is Judah's fault. Right? He, he withheld from her what he owed to her. And remember that Judah doesn't know that this is the woman that he slept with. Because once you remember those two things, you're ready for the incredible hypocrisy and gall that we see at the end of verse 24, where Judah says, bring her out and let her be burned. 
Right? Judah is so deep in his hypocrisy that he wants to burn this woman to death for her sexual immorality, while he himself has been guilty of visiting a prostitute. But friends, don't make the same mistake that Judah did. Right? Don't, don't think that you're necessarily so much better than he is. Right? We are prone to excuse the things that we do because we're sympathetic to ourselves. Right? We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We see the sins of other people very clearly. We're, we're very practiced in passing judgment on the sins of others. But we tend not to think that the things that we do reflect who we really are. Yes, I, I drink a little bit too much, but I'm under a lot of stress. I, I use pornography, but my, my wife doesn't have sex with me very often. I never give money to the Lord's cause, but I, I do have a lot of bills. I, I gossip, but it's just a way of making conversation, really. I'm, I'm judgmental, but really it's because I'm committed to living right. right? We're, we're prone to excuse ourselves. That's what Judah is doing here. He knows he's guilty of the same things. He just doesn't think that makes him a bad person. He thinks it makes Tamar a bad person. Right? Like Judah, we condemn people for doing the very same things that we do, or sometimes even less than what we do. Right? It might remind you of what the Apostle Paul said to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 2. It says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. This is Romans 2 chapter 1. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Friends, there's a very real danger in being in Judah's position, passing judgment on the moral failures of others. You'd better be very certain that your moral house is in order because it is the nature of sin that, that one of the ways we blind ourselves to our own faults is, is by focusing on and judging the sins of others. So Judah condemns this woman to death. Thankfully, Tamar has an ace in the hole. There in verse 25, she sends Judah his items, and says, hey, just to be clear, the, the guy who owns these things is the one who got me pregnant. There in verse 26, Judah is forced to face the facts that he's the one who deserves to be condemned, that he's the immoral one, and Tamar is ultimately spared through her wits. Now that leads us to the big question that, that we have to ask of this passage. Again, why on earth is this in the Bible? Why does Moses interrupt the story of Joseph in order to tell us this tawdry tale? Well, I think in terms of the, the larger plot of the book of Genesis, it seems like it's designed to give us a sense of contrast between Joseph and his brothers. Joseph is the one who will save the family, and it's clear that they need saving. Right? Judah is shown here to be sexually immoral and a hypocrite. But next week, we'll see Joseph presented with an opportunity to commit sexual immorality and get away with it, and he doesn't give in to temptation. But it also seems like this story is meant to show us the moment in Judah's life where he changed. It seems that he feels deeply exposed by these events. There in verse 26, he, he responds to the presentation of his possessions. It says in verse uh, 20, actually verse 28, I believe. No, verse 26. 
It says, Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. Right, the whole situation perhaps reminds you of, of the time when Nathan, the prophet, came to confront King David some thousand years later in 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you remember, the king had had an affair. Really, he had taken another man's wife, Bathsheba, and then he killed that man in order to cover up what he had done. And, and David, much like Judah, went on about his life as if he had done nothing wrong, seemingly not at all bothered by his sin. But the Lord sent the prophet Nathan to him. And Nathan told the king a story about a, a rich man who took and killed the one lamb that belonged to a poor man. David was rightly outraged by the story. He ordered the man to be punished, but Nathan turned the mirror to him with that famous line, you are the man. You're the man in the story. You've done far worse. Right here, Judah identifies Tamar as an immoral woman, but, but the mirror is suddenly shifted, and he's forced to see that he's actually less righteous than she is, that he's wronged her by keeping Shelah from her. He condemned her, but in so doing, he condemned himself. And friend, maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you, like Judah, have been drifting into worldliness and sin, and maybe you can see it now. Maybe you can see that you've been excusing yourself, maybe even judging other people for doing the same things. Friend, the good news is that God is merciful to those who turn from their sin and turn to him. And from this point in Judah's life, it does seem like he's different. It seems like this is a wake-up call that, that, that spurs him to repentance. So from here on out in chapters 43 and 44, we we see that he's concerned suddenly for the life of his half-brother and the rest of his family. We see in chapter 44, he speaks honestly and passionately, begging Joseph to spare Benjamin's life. When we get to chapter 49, we see that Jacob actually blesses Judah, really above all of his other brothers. And we read there in Genesis 49, starting in verse 8, Jacob says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So there's this blessing spoken over Judah's life. There's this promise made that, that Judah's family line would be the one from whom kings would come. Do you see that, that language there? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. That's the, the royal scepter, the sign of kingly authority, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. This is the guy who gave his staff to a prostitute. But God in his love has, has brought Judah to repentance, has restored him, and actually makes a promise to him that his, his staff will never depart. Judah's line will have a preeminence in the story of God's redemption through the sons of Israel. So it seems that Judah has turned to the Lord and is now the one through whom God will accomplish many of his purposes to save the world. And I think that brings us to the most important thing that happens in this passage. 
Because what's really at stake here in Genesis 38 is the line of Judah. Right? If Judah's two oldest sons are dead, and Shelah seems to be off in hiding somewhere, how exactly is Judah going to have a line of offspring? How are kings going to come from him? And so what you see in Genesis 38 is that God is intervening, even in this sordid story, to preserve his purposes and accomplish his plan to save his people and to bless all the nations. Here he gives Judah offspring who will continue his line. So we read at the end of our passage, beginning there in verse 27. It says, when the time of her labor came, this is Tamar, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. So we have a story of of twins and conflict of sorts in the womb. Zerah's hand comes out first, but he, but he withdraws it. Perez manages to emerge from the womb first. And he's considered the firstborn. And we've been around the book of Genesis long enough to know that something significant has to come from this, right? When twins are fighting in the womb and, and somebody's born in a weird way, right, something's going to happen. And when we get to Genesis 46, we see that something indeed has happened. We see that the genealogies of the sons of Jacob, we see that Judah's line is going to be counted through this child, Perez. Judah's line is continued for the purposes of of the record and for the purposes of salvation through his son by Tamar. So we read there in Genesis 46, verse 12. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. And Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And then he continues on the genealogy. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. So Perez is the one through whom the line will be counted. And as the story of redemption unfolds, it becomes clear that this line of Judah, continued through Perez, is going to be significant. So in the book of Ruth, if you remember, Boaz and Ruth are about to be married in chapter 4. And the people bless them. Listen listen to how they bless this couple. It says there in Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, speaking of Ruth, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. You see, by the time of of Ruth, Perez's name, his house, is synonymous with greatness, with offspring. The book of Ruth ends this way. After Ruth and Boaz have a child, listen to this. It says there in in Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 16. This is the end of the book of Ruth. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse 
the father of David. And then this is how the book of Ruth ends. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Can you see what Ruth shows us about why it is that Moses wanted to make sure we knew about this story? Why it is that, that Moses interrupted his Joseph narrative to tell us about this tawdry affair? Because if you don't know where Perez comes from, you don't understand where King David comes from. You don't understand how God was at work over the course of a thousand years in the line of Perez to bring about the man after his own heart, the man who would do more than any other Israelite in the Old Testament to bring to fruition the promises that God made to Abraham. But friends, that's the only the beginning of the story because there's something much larger going on here. Because another thousand years later, after the great King David, God sent an even greater king, a greater deliverer, to accomplish an even, even greater fulfillment of all of his promises to Abraham. God sent his son to take on human flesh, to become one of us. The son of God came to earth fully God. He became fully man as well. And so when Matthew and Luke go to put down an account of Jesus' life, his birth, they make a point of giving us his genealogy, telling us about his ancestry. In the ancient world, that was your resume. That's how you answered the question, who are you and why are you important? And look at how Matthew begins his genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. See that? He's pulled Judah out of all the 12 sons of Israel. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Brothers and sisters, do you see? Here Matthew is recording for us the names of the people that God used to bring about the gift of his Savior. And right there in the list is Tamar the Canaanite woman who dressed up like a prostitute so her father-in-law could get her pregnant. Now we really know why Moses put this story in the narrative. Yes, all the action is going on in Egypt where, where Joseph is doing a great job of, of being moral and holy and doing all the right things. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, God is working to extend the line of Judah through this woman so that he can bring about kings and so they're going to bring about, the, bring about the one king who will save the world. Friends, this is how we need to read the next 12 chapters in the book of Genesis. We're going to see God save the family of, of Jacob from famine in the land of Egypt or through the land of Egypt. But the most important thing is not just how the family survives, though that is important. The most important thing is that Perez survives because he's the one who must be saved because he's the one from whom the Lord Jesus will come. 
And so friends, as we conclude, let me just briefly draw out a couple of things, three things that we can take away from all this. First, I think we're reminded here that the ups and downs of our lives only make sense in the much bigger picture. Right, if you come to Genesis 38 and you read this story out of context, it seems like a story of great wickedness and death and dishonesty and perversion and deceit. And it is. And you're left to wonder, why is this in the Bible? But if you come to Genesis 38 and you read it in light of the promises to Abraham being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, suddenly it's a completely different story. Tamar, in this light, is less a cunning deceiver and more a woman who is clawing her way into the line of blessing, into the line of God's promise. She feels almost like the, the Syrophoenician woman who, who came to the Lord Jesus and would not be denied, even though she was an outsider. Friends, it's true that our lives cannot be judged and evaluated by what we see in the moment. They, they may be not even really understandable when we die. We might not know what God is doing and what he's been about. The Lord's purpose to bless us and to bring about his salvation in our lives and in the lives of others oftentimes comes through circumstances that do not seem like a blessing in the moment. The Lord's salvation often comes dressed in the clothing of temporary disappointment and loss. So Christian, don't conclude from today's pain and today's failure and today's loss that God is not powerfully at work in ways that will only make sense to us in eternity. Here in Genesis 38, there is very little light. But seen in the bigger picture, we see that God has been at work to save. It also means that it's never too late for God to redeem the sins and the failures that have marked our lives. Right? That's the second thing. Judah really doesn't come off very well here in chapter 38, does he? Right, he mistreats his daughter-in-law. He gets her pregnant when he thinks he's visiting a prostitute. And some of us in God's mercy have been spared from those kinds of things in our own lives. But let's be honest, some of us haven't. Some of us could put together a list that would go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the things that Judah does here in chapter 38. And so the great news is that God brought Judah to repentance, that he shocked him awake, that he showed him that he was less righteous than this woman that he condemned, that he wanted burned to death. And so we see that no one is too broken. No one is too sinful to be used massively by the Lord. Christians should go without saying this ought not encourage us to sin, but it should give us hope that God can use even our sins to bring about his good purposes. But don't get it twisted, because we're, we're not talking about a sort of vague and, and sentimental good feeling, right? The idea that you might see on, a, on an Instagram post or a coffee cup in the Christian bookstore about how God has a plan for everything, and, and he makes lemonade out of the lemons of our lives. Right? This, is, this is not that kind of sort of vague, wishy-washy promise. Now, this is a rock-solid absolutely certain promise for those of us who are in Christ, that there is no condemnation for you despite your sin, that everything will always work for good for those who have been called according to his purpose. But friends, it is a promise that has been wrought in sacrifice. 
It's a rock solid promise because it's been secured with nails through the hands and feet of the Lord Jesus. This promise is a certainty because it's written in his blood. Jesus came to suffer for our sins. He was born into the line of Judah, into the line of Tamar, to bear the guilt and the punishment that we deserve for the things that we've done. He offered up his life as an atoning sacrifice on the cross. And he rose in victory over sin and death and everything that stood against us. That's why Judah could receive a blessing at the end of his life rather than a curse, despite what he had done. That's why you can be blessed rather than cursed, despite what you've done. If you've turned to Christ in repentance and faith, then that's your story. If you haven't done that yet, then today's the day. God can save you through Christ. He can redeem you. He can bring everything in your life that is twisted and broken to serve the larger purpose of his glory and your salvation. If you'll go to Jesus in humble faith, if you'll trust in what he did for you on the cross. That brings us to our third thing, and that is, I think this story ought to give us a deep appreciation for the humility and the love of the Lord Jesus. This is brief, but I I think Genesis 38 ought to make us love Jesus more. Think about it. The Son of God, enthroned on the praises of the angels, became a man in order to save us through his death. And when he came, he didn't come in the way that we would think. He didn't come to an important place. He wasn't born to an important family. But he came and he identified with people like you and me. He came in a way that made it clear that he was here to save sinners. He was born into the line of people like Tamar. He was born into the line of people that the world considered to be of no account. In order to be treated by the world as if he were of no account. In order to save people like you and me. Who are to the world of no account. Friends, Genesis 38 shows us that God is at work in the chaos and the mess of our lives. And the life and the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus shows just how far and just how powerfully uh, the Lord works to love us and save us. That he would stoop to be born into the story of Genesis 38 and redeem it. So Christian, you can be sure that he is not ashamed to call you his brother and sister. He's not ashamed to be identified with Judah and Tamar. We know that we are not too low. We are not too sinful for him to want us to be with him. And because of that confidence, because of that great love for sinners, we know we can come, we can respond to his invitation to come to the Lord's table. It's that great love, that great sacrifice, that great humility of the Lord Jesus that we remember as a church family when we come together to the table. We come not as people who deserve to be invited, but as people who have been invited because God sent his son to save sinners. So let's pray together, and then we'll celebrate. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, how marvelous you are that you would set your love on sinners like us, that you wouldn't choose out from humanity the, the wisest, the most moral, the strongest, but that you would set your love, that you would send your son for us while we were still sinners.
Lord Jesus, we love you for your humility, your sacrifice. Holy Spirit, would you help us to, to believe that the Father loves us? Would you help us to flee to the Lord Jesus for grace? Help us to rejoice, we pray, as we come to the table. Amen.